but you know just moving on you know so you know the patient as a patient they belong to a particular racial or ethnic group you know they were born in circumstances in which they were not breastfed and we're going to talk about that as a baby they struggled with childhood obesity probably did not graduate from high school not employed and probably pregnant right now as a teenager or young person um they have a higher level of food insecurity with greater access to poor quality foods. They have less access to convenient places for physical activities. And they're at home just bored. They switch on the TV and it's all about buying fried foods, you know, some kind of, you know, targeted marketing for unhealthy foods. They have poor access to doctor's offices or any health care at all, and um, or even to referrals to convenient community organizations that might aid uh, them. And now that this patient is obese and they don't have the $1,300 for rent, talk less for to buy some obesity medication. This is just a very complex problem that, can you just speak a little bit to this for us? Yeah, and it's extremely complex. People with obesity are dealing with a number of factors, right? And in addition to that, I think what you've outlined is along barriers to health equity. So we know that uh, in the United States, it is not easy or affordable to live a healthy life. And that's the reality for many of our patients, particularly in urban environments. An urban environment is much cheaper and much easier for me to eat unhealthy food. So when we talk about food deserts, that's a term that we hear all the time, right? And it is defined as a distance or how far someone has to go to get fresh and nutritious food. And the further it is, then we go into the category of food desert. Now, it's one thing to have to travel to get nutritious food. It's another thing when in addition to having to travel, I also have poorly nutritious food that is readily available to me. And that's what we call food swamps, where there is an overabundance of poorly nutritious food in comparison to limited options for nutritious opportunities. That is the reality in urban communities where I would walk out the house and there's a corner store, there's a fast food restaurant, fast food restaurant, fast food restaurant, fast food restaurant. And then 15 minutes later is when I get to the grocery store where the food is two or three times as expensive and it's going to take two or three times more time to prepare it. And it may not even taste good, right? In addition to marketing, and you talked about, you know, the person sitting at home and turning on the television. There are targeted marketing for poorly nutritious food to underrepresented and minority communities all the time. And when we think about schools, when we think about recreation centers, we think about the, the products that, that we see, the figures and pictures of the characters that our children like. What are the children going to ask for? You know, you talk about childhood obesity. If the child is in love with this character, they see it on TV, they see it on the cartoon. 
when was the last time you saw a cartoon character on a bag of broccoli or bag carrots? You don't see them, right? They're on the high sugar cereal and they're on the high sugar snack cakes and everything else. And then when the baby is crying for the snack cake, we wonder why. There is a whole structure that encourages individuals to make a decision to eat poorly nutritious food. It's easier, it's cheaper, and it tastes good. So until we change that narrative where fresh food doesn't have to be more expensive than an overly processed donut, it should not be twice as hard to get to it. We should not be bombarded with marketing materials for poorly nutritious food and never hear about food with high nutritional quality. These are critical pieces to the work that we have to do. Wow. You know, and then we we talked about breastfeeding, um, you know, following up on the mention of breastfeeding in tackling obesity very early in life, we look to breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is good for both infants and mothers and the American Academy of Pediatrics and many other health organizations recommend exclusive breastfeeding for about uh, approximately the first six months of life with addition of complementary foods around six months and continued breastfeeding uh, through the first year of life and beyond. You know, breast milk is the best source of nutrition for most infants. And as an infant grows, breast milk changes to meet the infant's nutritional needs. Breastfeeding can also help protect the infant and mother against certain illnesses and diseases. Do infants that are breastfed truly have a lower risk of childhood obesity? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The data has supported that. The data has supported that. As you've outlined, our bodies are very well designed and breast milk gives the nutrition that the children need. Now, one, oftentimes when we start to think outside of that, um, there are some good choices because again, there are some mothers that have difficulty with breastfeeding. But when we don't make the choices that are being promoted to us, our choices that are high in sugar and not as nutrition and nutritious, then we can set our children up for childhood obesity. Now, I will say this, breastfeeding exclusively for the first six months of childhood is a privilege because there are many women who are not able to stay at home with their children and not have to work to provide exclusive breast milk for the child or are not in a profession where they can pump and have breast milk available that they can leave with the child when they have to go back to work. This is a reality. We have many women who, as you know, right, who are working on their feet, essential workers, they don't get an opportunity to go and, and pump. They, are now, they don't get an, a fridge to, to set down the milk to bring home to the child. So we have to think about that. Are we setting up a system where every woman has an opportunity to breastfeed their child? And if we're not, then we can't knock people over the head when they're not doing it, when the system is not set up to support them in doing so. In teaching mothers how to breastfeed in the hospital, right? Lactation experts. We have lactation experts who are culturally competent and who are working with mothers from all ethnic and racial backgrounds in an equal way, okay? Are we encouraging mothers to breastfeed or are we turning our nose and saying, 
No, don't breastfeed. That's that's primitive. That's not what we see. And and if we think back to decades, the 60s, the 70s, many of the women in minority communities were pushed a belief that breastfeeding was for poorer individuals. And if you've made it, you can afford the formula, right? You can afford, and this is not something that you need to do. So I think we have to kind of unpack some of the cultural norms that are put in there, but also think about the reality and the barriers to breastfeeding because we know breastfeeding has benefit, not just for obesity, immunity, okay, health of the children, growth. I mean, there's just so many benefits from breastfeeding that our kids are missing out on. Wow, wow. We've been talking to Dr. Michael G. Knight, um, obesity expert. And, um, you know, we're just so fortunate to have you on, uh, Dr. Knight. The most recent data from the CDC uh, in 2021 indicate that 83% of infants are breastfed ever and 55% of infants are breastfed at six months. Infants living in the Southeast are less likely to be breastfed at six months than infants living in other areas of the country. Infants in rural areas are less likely to ever breastfeed than infants living in urban areas. And fewer non-Hispanic Black infants are ever breastfed compared with Asian infants, non-Hispanic white infants, and Hispanic infants. I bring these statistics because do these statistics mimic adult obesity distribution and rates, Dr. Knight? Yes, they do. And we know that it's multifactorial, of course, but we do know that breastfeeding does play a role in early nutrition. It's the first nutrition that many of our children have. And so that is a huge thing. But we also have to understand that the barriers to breastfeeding are oftentimes the same barriers to better health that adults are facing and barriers to prevention of obesity. Well, thank you. I want to talk about your bio a little bit. You know, during medical school, you participated in the year-long clinical research training program at the National Institutes of Health, where your research focused on metabolic disease and obesity in women of African descent. You then completed residency in internal medicine with special training in obesity medicine at New York Presbyterian Well Cornell Medical Center. I want to pivot into the surgical management of obesity. What is the state of the science of bariatric surgery in the United States now? Yeah, so bariatric surgery has really developed into a very safe procedure for individuals with obesity. For indications for bariatric surgery includes individuals with a BMI of 35 or older over with complications of obesity, such as sleep apnea, uh, diabetes, or a BMI of 40 and above. And what we have found is that over time with, with the you know, work through surgical procedures and certification, that this can be a very safe procedure for individuals and can lead to significant weight loss, significant weight loss. And so when we think about that, think about uh, opportunities to lose 50 to 70% of excess body weight, 
then that is a great opportunity for our patients. Wow. You know, individuals who meet this eligibility criteria for bariatric surgery, they are generally older, they come from racial and ethnic minorities, are economically disadvantaged and have low levels of education. However, the population who actually receives bariatric surgery does not reflect the individuals who need it most. Can you explain to us the inequities to access of bariatric surgery and what health policy is at play here? Yeah, so there's huge barriers to bariatric surgery. So number one, just like with medications to treat obesity, is someone has to recommend that. And so we have providers who are telling patients, you don't need that surgery. You can just stop eating so much and not understanding the pathophysiology occurring. So it's educating our healthcare providers so that they can recommend bariatric surgery when it is appropriate. Secondly, there are a lot of hoops that our patients have to jump through to get to bariatric surgery, right? Usually you have to do at least six months of dietary counseling, even if they've dieted their entire life. They got to do six months of, of documented bariatric nutrition counseling. They often have to get a psychiatric, a psychiatry uh, clearance. They have to meet with sometimes a cardiologist, sometimes a lung doctor. Sometimes they have to get a sleep apnea test. Sometimes they have to get an endoscopy where they look down into the stomach. There's a laundry list of things that may need to be done. And someone who has a lot on their plate, other priorities, or may not be health literate, it may be very difficult for them to go through all of those checklists. And without it, they're not able to get it. So some people give up. People say, I can't keep up with this. It's too much. Um, but it's also education, making sure our patients know. Many patients don't want a surgery because, again, they have been told over and over, if you just stop eating so much, you wouldn't have excess weight. And the thought of now having to have a surgery to overcome that can be very frightening. So, again, it's educating our patients to understand that obesity is a chronic medical condition. And just like if your gallbladder was giving you a problem, we would go in and take it out. That surgical procedure a similar way obesity can be addressed. So as we close, I'm going to um, um, talk about you and then ask you to give us one closing thought that binds everything together. So we've been talking to Dr. Michael G. Knight, and you have been featured as a medical expert on radio, television, and in print media. And um, you've received numerous awards, and um, including um, the American Medical Association Foundation Leadership Award. Uh, you've received the award of top 30, under 30 alumni of Case Western Reserve University, and top 40, under 40 leaders in health award by the National Minority Quality Forum. Your awards have also include top healthcare professionals under 40 award by the National Medical Association and Washingtonian Magazine's Top Doctors Award. So I just wanna say thank you for everything you do. And in closing, if you were going to leave us with a pattern piece of advice with respect to, you know, basically 
you know, everything we've talked about, just patient safety and management of obesity and uh, making health uh, equity less of a problem, health inequities less of a problem, what would you leave us with? Yeah, I would leave it with that everyone has a role in achieving health equity. So for our patients, being educated, finding a healthcare provider that you can trust, that you can partner with to understand what's going on with your body and understanding what you can do to prevent illness. It's not just waiting till you get sick to go to the doctor. It's having a relationship so that you get preventive care. You're getting preventive screenings. For healthcare providers, it's about understanding what our patients really need and acknowledging any bias that we may have or if we are treating people differently, to have a plan to stop that, to address that, to making sure we're doing evidence-based medicine for every patient. And for our healthcare system and for our legislators, it's making sure we have policy and practice in place to keep people healthy. We want to get to a time where every individual, no matter where they're from, no matter their zip code, what they look like, who they love, they have the ability to achieve their highest health potential. We're not there yet. But I believe that together we can get there for the patients that need it the most. Dr. Knight, thank you so very much for coming to Coco Pods podcast, a feature of the Bird Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. Thank you so much for your time and just uh, having this conversation with us today. Thank you for having me.